welcome everyone to Butterflies and Bravery. And we are so thrilled that you're joining us again for another episode. And we have a wonderful, amazing guest. Her name is Deb Donner. Deb Donner. As it's it's a really I love obviously I love alliterative of names. Um, <laughs> Whisper wind. Whisper wind. <laughs> Butterflies and bravery. <laughs> Deb Donner. Yeah, so welcome. We're really excited to to have Deb on today. And she herself was in a cult different from us. And so we're gonna be hearing her story and hearing a little bit about her journey out. I am your host, Whisper, and it's always my lovely co-host. Best friend forever, Mr. Ever. Myron Ferris. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's, let's talk jump to right in. Yeah. So, Jemima, are you the Jemima that was on the People docu- that documentary? Okay. Yes. When I started following you guys, I'm like, oh my God, she that's her. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She's and then, <laughs> Whisper was on another one. The A&E. Uh, called yeah. Cults and Extreme Beliefs. Yeah. Oh. On A&E. Yeah, with, with Dr. Yanya Lalich and Amy Brill and some of our other. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I did watch that one. You did? <laughs> yeah. How do you guys feel about the way that, that they handled your stories? So, uh, kind of. That's why we started this podcast, basically. (laughs) It's it's one of the reasons why we started this podcast, because we wanted people to be able to tell their stories the way that they wanted them told. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and factually, too, because often Mm -hmm. in those documentaries, there's there's small mistakes that they Mm -hmm. make. And then you're just like, that's not how it went. And Mm -hmm. then it makes the rest of it somewhat less credible to people i feel that it makes the rest of it less credible to people that are mm-hmm. like if they messed up that then they're probably just messing up other stuff too yeah and then also they like to really sensationalize like we call it cult porn it's like <laughs> yeah. murder porn or trauma porn so yeah. everybody's oh my god look at them and then they're like yeah. oh and then you're just that's not really right. that's not why i wanted to share my story yeah. the reason right. why we want to share our stories is to help others to heal most in most right. cases, yeah. it's not. Oh, hey, everybody, look at me! All these terrible things happen. That's no. terrible yeah. things right. happen to everybody. Right. Yeah. But but we want to lighten the burden for others, basically. And yeah, that's a yeah. lot of the reason why we started this, right. so people could tell their story in their own words, the way that they wanted it told, and with yeah. with really emphasizing the subjects that they felt were important. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And and especially because coming from a cult growing up in a cult is actually, it's a very unique experience. Jemima said, bad things happen to everybody, but then at the same time, like the bad things can sometimes be very unique to the stories. And if you don't have a way to express that, it makes it really hard. Like the documentaries, those stories are passed through the filter of the understanding of the documentary maker, the way Mm -hmm. that they understand it. And if they have not been grown up in a cult or have like intense background knowledge they're going to filter it in a way that they understand. Exactly. Which is not the way that we understand it in in that way. So having a podcast where it's like, no, 
we understand it. It was so fun interviewing Elisa, the last podcast we just did. And she kept saying, it's so different talking to people who have actually been in the cult, have mm-hmm. that experience in it. And mm-hmm. we're like, exactly, that's what we want. <laughs> we want yeah. you to come and feel comfortable to say, okay, I, you know what I'm talking about. And when I say this experience, the depth of that pain, the depth of that yes. hurt, and what that really meant. And you understand the other thing that's, I think, very unique to to cult survivors is our experience in the world. The way that we have to conform and understand and change and grow is very different because we were, in most <laughs> cases, kept so separated and segregated from society. We didn't have the same experiences as everybody in even just like the small little ways. Like, right. I think only a cult right. survivor could have the understanding of what we, one time when I, one of my first jobs in the real world, we had this get to know each other and everybody was like sitting around okay let's everybody tell the story of your first and as a cult survivor like nobody could understand that the pain that that causes Mm -hmm. okay now I have to find some experience that's going to be understandable translate Mm -hmm. it into a language that quote-unquote regular people can understand and right then and there you're you're inauthentic. You're no longer yourself. You're no right. longer talking. So that that yeah. experience in the regular world is very unique to cult survivors, I think, of like that having right. to mask, <laughs> of having to to perform <laughs> to, to, to people. Exactly. Yeah. And you said something, bad things happen to everybody. Yeah, bad things happen to everybody. Psychotic things happen to us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The difference, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. It is. It's, it's hard to understand for sure. Yeah. It's shocking yeah. too. And a lot of people are like, oh, come on. And you're like, I'm not going to change my truth because you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not mm-hmm. my, that's not my issue. I'm not going to change the narrative so that you're comfortable hearing the abuse that I suffered. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. It, and here it is. Yeah. I've never, yeah. I don't apologize for speaking the truth and telling the things that happened to me and and um, making people uncomfortable because I think people should be uncomfortable. I think people should be so fucking uncomfortable that they get up and do something to help other people and to stop these crazy, psychotic, narcissist assholes from abusing kids. Very well said. which Which cult were you in? It was called the Wesleyan Community Church and a very small, independent little cult by this man who was originally a a pastor, a Methodist pastor in Illinois. Mm. He was told that he either could hand in his resignation or face a heresy trial and charges of conduct unbecoming a minister, which is putting it very lightly. (laughs) So the Methodist church was forced to deal with him and he just decided to hand in his resignation and take a bunch of people who followed him, who, you know, were were devoted to him and leave the state and form this commune on Vashon Island in Washington State. Yeah. So it was, it was, I guess that you would say it was a Christian. You can't even, I can't even uh, describe it as fundamental because I've been to a few fundamental church just to see what that is. And there's just no niche to put this guy in. He was just, he was a lone ranger, this narcissistic, crazy, like that brother, Julius. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the, uh, the the guy, the, okay. So there's the love family and then there's love Israel, right? 
I think the love family, is that the one children? Oh, children of God. Yeah. The love family, which is love Israel, I think two totally different things, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. We started as the children of God and then they changed. They tried to rebrand it into the family of love and then okay. eventually the family. Yes. But there is also a cult that was started and unique to Australia. That was also called the family. So okay. it's definitely love, family love. That's a, it's a very yeah. used name, I think. But yeah. it's interesting because that happened to, to the, the person who started um, the children of God, Berg. He got kicked out of his right his ministry yep. as well. He was trying to be a pastor or whatever, and got kicked out. And that's so it's interesting. And they, right. they try to describe us as fundamental Christian as well. And mm-hmm. I, I agree with you one hundred percent. You're like it's not exactly fundamental. It's no, yeah. <laughs> Stand yeah. alone. Because you can talk about fundamental and other churches that are very fundamental, very culty still, yeah. but fundamentally, that fundamental aspect of religion, the uh, speaking in tongues and the kind of Pentecostal charismatic jumbo that goes along with that. Yeah, I think that Berg and Hillendahl were a lot alike, mm-hmm. which is why I was so excited to talk to you guys and share experiences because there's so many similarities Whereas Berg was saying you should be able to love and have sex with anybody. Lou was saying you should be able to love and not have sex uh, with anybody. I was so, reading that. Interesting. I was reading that actually. Yeah. The, the whole thing was like laying together, not having sex, but people were right. doing it anyways. Oh, yeah. 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 I was reading an article about that. Lou decided that sex in society is a myth. Don't know what that meant. But to his followers, it made a whole lot of sense. So sex in society is a myth. And that people confuse sex and love. So if I said I loved you, that meant that I wanted to have sex with you in his mind. Big red flag, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's that's not a perversion. Right? So perverse. Everybody in society confuses sex and love. So I'm going to create these therapies to help you realize that love and sex are two different things. And in fact, sex is such a teeny tiny small part of anything that love is going to be our focus. So he decided that people should be able to be naked with each other and not have sexual urges or sexual responses. And here's how he would tell it to us. At one point in his life, he took his young daughter on his lap and he became uncomfortable with the fact that she was prepubescent. And then that is how he decided that, oh, wow, if I'm having these bizarre, strange, perverted urges, then everybody else must be having these strange, perverted urges, too. So I'm going to have to help them overcome those urges. When, in fact, he was probably a, a bit of a pedophile. I've never taken a child on my lap and never had sexual thoughts about him. And that's not because <laughs> of his, his right. therapy and his training. Right. There is something wrong with somebody who has those thoughts and those feelings. So he predicated his whole therapy and theories about sex as a myth on that one experience in his life. Wow. He's like, any father could take their daughter on their lap and never have sexual feelings for her. And I'm like, but isn't that healthy anyway? Isn't that how healthy people behave? And so he created these therapies in the church, in the parsonage, where people would go to the parsonage, get naked and lay with each other and hold each other and touch each other, which would have been okay if he had kept that to the just the adults, kept that crazy, bizarre insanity just among them. But he didn't. He brought in young girls, not young boys, young girls in the church. Oh. 
And then, yeah, I was 14 when he brought me into these groups. Was that the thing that they called skin time? Is skin that- time is when you went and spent the night at somebody's house and slept with them in their bed. Okay. That was skin time. I read, I read, I read about this. And you had to do it naked? Yeah. Yes. So if you couldn't be naked, then you had a sexual hang up and then you'd have to have a group and people would bully you and disparage you and berate you into realizing that you had a sexual hang up because you had to sleep in your pajamas or because you didn't want to be naked with somebody. So I was 14 years old. I didn't want to be naked with anybody. Right. I mean, I know this can be triggering, especially for you guys because of your experiences because I've listened and read and I understand the children of God. Um, but I get it. <laughs> I know what you experienced because at 14, I was passed around from church leader men to just other men in the fellowship, mostly leaders, to sleep with them naked while their wives were out of town or while their wives were off sleeping with other men mm. in the church. And for the most part, most of the men were trying to adhere to the non-sexual aspect of it. But some of them did not. Yeah, yeah. Right. Obviously, of yeah. course. I mean, I was 14, and I was with these men who were 30, 40, 50 years old without my consent. I never asked. Somebody would just pick me up at my house and drop me off at somebody's house and say, okay, you're going to spend the night here. You're going to spend the night with John. Oh, God. Wow. Who made so, those decisions? I don't know. I was so young. I think a couple of the female leaders, like Lou always had a female co-pastor and a majority of his leadership were women. And he, oh, always, had, and he always had younger women around him. And they were more his allies and his minions than the men. I think they made all these decisions. It was a tag team kind of a thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, that's, yeah, when you're that age, like you, you don't conceptualize what's going on. And especially if it's happening without your consent, like we know that experience. It was a schedule. Unfortunately, we had the experience of having to dread it, it coming because we could see it coming. We're like, oh, yeah. shit, on Wednesday night, I'm going to have to be with Uncle John. Yeah. And I know what that's going to be like. So, yeah, it's so confusing. At, yeah. even at that age, like you're how not. old were you? I can't remember you saying you guys were pretty. Were you born into that? Yes, yes, you yeah, both born into, it. born into it. Yeah, and so what ages were you when they started passing you around? I was 12 well, when they started what, put like putting yeah. us on the sharing schedule, but both of mm-hmm. us, our stepdads were making us service them and stuff like that when we were like much. I literally went to my second grade class and told them that my daddy rubbed my vagina because to me, this was normal, commonplace. Every day, this is what happens. And for me to tell that at show and tell, obviously must, I must've thought it was quite a normal thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course it was met with horror. And (laughs) did anybody do anything? I heard you say this the other day. No, No, they didn't. No, No, that's it. It was, yeah, like my first memorable experience was when I was eight and we were living in like trailer parks and we had this Mm -hmm. big old suburban and we all couldn't fit. I have like, now I have 11 brothers and sisters, but there was at the time, I think there was like five or six of us. We couldn't all fit in the trailers. So 
we slept in the, there was a mattress in the suburban and the two oldest, we were put in there, but with an adult man. Imagine as a mother being like, yes, that's a good idea. Let my eight-year-old daughter and Mm -hmm. seven-year-old son sleep Mm -hmm. in the back of a suburban with a grown-ass man. Mm -hmm. And such a normalized thing that I knew that mm-hmm. I needed to sleep between my brother and him to protect my brother. That's how I mm-hmm. knew. That's how I knew what was going on. It was like so common. And yeah, we, mm-hmm. so I was, it was eight. I was eight when I was really aware of that whole, like getting passed around from place to place. You'd walk into a trailer and they, people would be having sex or, and they'd ask you to join them or tell you to join them. So it was that early on that it was... Yeah. And, and like you said, it's like, that's your life. So you don't understand that there mm-hmm. is another way of living. You're right. just like, you're like, well, I guess I'm just, I'm living in hell and that's how right. it's going to go. Cause you exactly. like, you, it feels so wrong. It right. feels so wrong, but you don't understand why it feels so wrong. And right. that's a, yeah. So that, unfortunately it takes a while until you're like, you're much, you're an adult usually and out by the time you realize how fucked up that was and like, Mm -hmm. wow, I really should not have been raised that way. (laughs) Exactly. And and like you said, you don't know why the why of it is because we should have been protected. Yep. Those people who were using us and abusing us and raping us and molesting us were supposed to be the healthy adults who protected us and kept us safe. And when those people around you are behaving in these psychotic, abnormal, bizarre ways, your whole world just crumbles. Like your whole being just feels like shit because yeah. you, you're, they're doing these things to you. And at the same time, you're like, but come on, yeah, come on, be the adult here. I need you to save me. And the people that are supposed to save you are destroying you. I know that feeling. I felt like I was nothing when I was being used like that. I remember the first, they call them special groups. Like it was a special thing that people were invited to. And then they'd come back into church and say, oh, it was so wonderful. It's changed my life. It's amazing. And as a kid in an insane environment, I'm like, what the fuck are they doing now? Because I know it's not healthy. I know it's not going to be good for me because they don't think that way. Any Everything and anything that's good for them is what Lou told them was good for them. And they would take part in, and we watched his behavior and it was so psychotic and sick and it trickled down onto us. And there was yep. like, you know how underneath where birds sit, there's like piles of shit. <laughs> that was us underneath. You know, from up above. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be made into a comic. That's like such a great purpose. You know, you know that naked pastor? Do you, do you guys follow him on Instagram? He's called Naked Pastor. He makes these freaking awesome cartoons. I'm like, man, I got so many ideas for you. And that's what we were. We were like the shit covered statues in a park. And I knew it wasn't special. And I wasn't even, he didn't even like me. I was considered hostile. Man, imagine that, a grown man (laughs) being a child, a 14-year-old is hostile to him. Red flag number two. Um, We were were always labeled rebellious. You were rebellious. Yeah. And there was like no safety. That's what we didn't understand felt so wrong was that there was no safe space. You never felt safe and you lived your life 
right. knowing that any second day or yeah. night you could be harmed, you would be harmed. And that's exactly. And that was, you that knew feeling. It was coming. Yeah. You knew it was coming and you prepared for it. That's yeah. how I did it. I know it's coming. I don't know from where or when, but it's coming. Yeah. And you were talking about David Berg or the paddlings, the beatings with the paddles. Oh, Lou created God. these. He took two by fours and he honed them. So they had a handle. They were all <sighs> in piece. And then he would like, he put hours of time into these paddles, creating these paddles. And then he would drill holes in them for maximum pain. And he would give them out like presents to the families and expect them to be used. And he would almost salivate when parents would come back and talk about how they use the paddles to beat the kids and leave bruises all over our bodies. And it would be like, well done. Well done. See, here we go again. I swear, I, there is a fucking cult leader college somewhere that teaches are the same exact thing. Yeah. Yes. Because they did, literally did the same thing. Same exact yeah. thing. Literally. Cricket yeah. bats. Cricket bats was the most common, and they drilled oh. holes in them. Drilled holes, yeah. That's what Imagine. these were like. They looked like those cricket bats. Yeah. 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 Those work really good, apparently. Fucking <laughs> psychos. And here's Seriously. the deal. Here we, we're, we're grownups now. We can talk about this and tell people about this. Yeah. And people will be like, oh, my God. Oh, that's so horrible. But you know what? We talked about it back then. And nobody went, oh, my God, that's so horrible. How can I help you? And, and on the one hand, I speak and I tell my story because I know that it's going on still in many places. That woman, she's still allowed to walk free. What was her yep. name? Mother David Berg's wife. Karen Zerby. Karen Zerby. Yep. Yeah. Fucking psychopath still out there with her yeah. husband. And yeah. they're like, did you see their photo on her webpage? Yeah. Oh, look at us. We're so, we're so wonderful. And I'm like, you're a psychopath, man. Yeah. You're a freaking psychopath. And it's, if people want to do something, if you want to get involved and you want to make this stop, then stop pretending like it's okay. And like, it's okay because it's under religious umbrellas. Yep. People to abuse their children, to beat them with paddles, lock them in basements until the bruises go away before you send them back to school. Or better yet, just take them out of school altogether and teach them under your Christian guises yep. and nobody pays attention. Yeah, the free, freedom, freedom of religion, it mm -hmm. just is a label that gets slapped on anything evil. It, well, it was our experience. The same thing. As long as it's done in love, then it's okay. And that right. was our message constantly, day and night. As long as it's blessed by God or done in love, then it's okay. And people would just literally slap, like, evil, perversion, horrid, mm -hmm. abusive behavior, and then slap that, well, I did it in love. I did it. God wanted me yeah. to do it. It's it's the same thing like we see at, in today's world where, like, free speech gets slapped on hate speech and everybody's like, well, I can't do anything about it because mm -hmm. they have free speech. <laughs> like, no, this mm -hmm. is there. This is not freedom of religion. This is right. abuse and mm -hmm. it needs to be seen as such. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, we're finally having those conversations. I feel like the world mm -hmm. is finally starting to wake up and say, wait a second, that there's this whole generation of us kids that were born out of the fucking seventies, that whole fucking movement. We're all now, coming into adulthood and saying that was wrong. This needs mm -hmm. to stop. And that's what mm -hmm. we're seeing right now is this movement. Yeah. But we're up against, like you said, like this, where everyone's like, well, it's okay because we can't do anything about it because. And I then ran they... away. I ran away twice. Wow. In Illinois. I ran away when I was like, after that first special group, I ran away because I never really considered suicide because if I had, I wouldn't be here right now. 
Like that was just not something that I ever considered, but I yeah. wanted to die. Yeah. And I thought, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't really care what I do. It wasn't like I, I, like I want somebody to kill me. It's I just want to die. So this pain goes away. So I would put myself in these situations and these places that were completely, I wouldn't go there as, as an adult today. Just thinking, okay, maybe something will happen. I, I did angel dust at 14 years old. Thinking this is probably a way out, but maybe not. I don't know. But then I would be brought to the police. Like the police would catch me, take me to the police station. And rather than my mother coming to pick me up, Lou would come to pick me up. And I would tell them, don't let him take me. Don't, I don't want to go with him. He's evil. He's, you know, and I would, I didn't really get into specifics because it never occurred to me to tell people the specific mm-hmm. abuses that were taking place. Yeah. And I, I can't even. I can't even figure out why that is, why I didn't say to them, he's molesting me. They put me in this group where men were putting their fingers up inside me and squeezing my boobs like I was melons in a grocery store and making me sleep with grown men. Had I maybe told them that, they would have said, whoa, wait a minute. But it was just, I don't want to go back there. I hate it at home. So I looked like a, an angry child a belligerent, angry child who was acting out. And then my pastor would come in, this kind, loving man who only cared about my family. Right. Pick me up and take me home. And they would say, here you go. Here she is. And then he would take me home, whip out the paddle, beat the shit out of me. And I'd be locked away until the bruises went away. We need people to listen to us and to see through those, those little, those fine little intricacies of why a child is behaving the way they are. Why would yes. a child run away from home if it was so perfect at home? Hmm, yep. Maybe it's not so perfect at home. And get people to recognize the subtle behaviors in us that show that we've been sexually abused, that we have been emotionally abused, that we've been psychotically and viciously attacked by adults. Yes. It's like this troubled teen industry. Oh, my kid's in trouble. Let's send him off to this yep. place. <laughs> we were just well, talking about that. <laughs> your teen's in trouble. Let's take a look at what the fuck's going on at home here. Let's talk about your parenting. Let's talk about your the environment at home. Because if a kid needs to escape their home, it's not healthy and it's not safe. Yep. So exactly. you can see I get super emotional about this. <laughs> Yeah. It's not even just about it happening to us. It's about us stopping it from happening to other people. Yes. I can't go back and make it not happen to me. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And I wish I could, but maybe I don't because I see now so many people and it's been 40 years since I escaped the cult. And I had never in that 40 years until a year ago in March ever talked to anybody else who had escaped a cult. Wow. It's, it just is, except the kids that I was with. Yeah. Oh, how isolating that must've felt. Yeah. 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 So now that I'm hearing like you talk about your stories and other people like the, the ex Mooney kids and, and I understand their pain and suffering, but I don't, I can't relate to what they went through because I wasn't marriage trafficked and put out on the streets to make money and lived in vans. But I can relate to what you're talking about, being used in these these just perverse, psychotic ways. Yeah. It's like, yes, I get it. I yeah. get it. I hear you. I feel that. It's, oh, my God, and you understand, too. <laughs> yeah. 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 
you understand why I am the way I am. (laughs) (laughs) And and what's so damaging is that it's, it comes to us at a time in your life where you're supposed to be learning individuality. Your teen years are the most important years of your life to start understanding yourself connected with the world, your own individuality, your own autonomy. And those were the years that they squeezed us and locked Mm -hmm. us up the most. There's so many of us that just ended up just disconnected to yourself and just not understanding even who you are. And you're coming here, you are here, like late thirties or forties. And you're like, I'm figuring out who I am. I'm figuring out like what I even stand for or what I believe in or even what I like, even just as simple as what I like, what I want to lean towards. You're mm-hmm. having to learn that in your 40s because you're finally you're finally coming into your individuality and your own autonomy that was mm-hmm. stolen from you. And yeah. that's a very devastating experience, I think, to lose that of yourself. Like mm-hmm. when you have yourself, when you are connected to yourself and you know yourself in your soul, that gives you the strength to go through things and in a very different way. But when that is has been stolen from you, you're just left alone to go through these experiences with nothing to stand on, no pillar to stand on. So you're just right. like free flying through these right. awful experiences. And now here we are trying to sort it out and put the pieces together and figure out what the fuck even happened to us. Mm-hmm. And that is a very unique experience to to mm-hmm. you know to cult to cult kids. Yeah. Even more so than joining, even more so than joining. Like that's such a whole different experience. And I'm not saying that the people that joined are not victims. Like I'm sure you know that your mom, because your mom joined. How old were you when she joined? I was 14. So my mom's 20 years older than me. So she was 34. Okay. She was young. So yeah. yeah, So I'm I'm sure there's parts of you that see the the victimhood that your mom, like that the victim stuff that your mom went through. But it's so different from what you, who had no choice, we're right. forced into. It's a totally yeah. different experience. I have a very difficult time still grasping the concept that adults who chose to join a group where they submitted themselves to bizarre behaviors and followed a narcissist are victims. When I was a child and I needed those adults to especially my mother, but the other adults too, to realize that I was important, that I deserved safety. I deserved advocacy. I deserved encouragement, love, and education, healthy eating, medical treatment. I needed her to see that, but I watched her climb up Lou's ass and make him important. I have a difficult time seeing them as the same type of victims as we were. Yeah, it's a con. It's a constant struggle for, yeah. me, for just me personally, like how to do that. And I, it, there's quite a few of us ex kids that were born into the in the children of God because they were rather large. And right. Um, right. there's all these different groups, and there's some of these groups that are like they want to let's do action against let's get some action going against the cult but but they're also the first generation the people that joined are part of this group and for me personally that's really hard to I don't know how to work alongside of you right because it's such a different experience than what you had happened and there's gonna always be the part of me that looks at you and says but you chose you saw what happened you Mm -hmm. stayed you read those instructions that caused Mm -hmm. my trauma 
Mm-hmm. And you stayed. And, and I'm happy that now you see it as wrong, but it's really difficult for me to go side mm-hmm. by side with you and say, yes, let's be yeah. a team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No teamwork with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, so, so I completely get, get you with that. And, and it's a constant, yeah. it's a constant struggle. Like our relationships with our parents yeah. mm-hmm. is so difficult. That is such right. a difficult thing beyond the regular struggle that like it's supposed to happen. You're always supposed to struggle in part against yeah. your parents. That's part of <laughs> that's part yeah. of growing up. This is a completely different situation where you're like so many times my relationship with my mother was she was telling me how she's telling me how bad she had it and how she was victimized. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, okay, but you gave me to people. Like you fucking right. gave me to people. Right. Like and you want me to sympathize with you. And it's just it's hard. And I do sympathize on it on a certain level, but I know that's not where I can get my support or validation from. Right. It's not. And I had to let that go. And right. it took years for me to be able to let that go and say, I'm not gonna get this from you. I have to put yeah. you in a in a different category. And we're all parenting ourselves now. And that's a really difficult place to be in. When I was nine, though, my parents divorced and my mother was, was I, I called it like her second adolescence. And she was up partying, facing yeah. guys. I mean, she wouldn't come home for days. And we lived in what I call the sewage house because of the septic tank backed up into the backyard. So we couldn't yeah. run water. Yeah. I would back them into the house. It was a whole horrible existence. And I was already parenting myself. And my youngest siblings when I was nine years old. So it was like when she went to the church, it was like I was prepared for the insanity that I experienced there. And on one hand, thank God, because had I had a normal life, some of my friends did before their parents, I might have just fallen in with it and just been like, okay, this is something different and better. But it was different and worse. Like you say that that relationship with your parents my mother, so there's more involved. There was a trial and I filed a lawsuit against the commune. Wow. I left in 81 and my mom left in 84 because my son was born in 84. Oh, wow. um, and she left because she wanted to have sex with a man outside the church and they freaked out about that. <laughs> and so she continued through her whole life was doing things to chase a man to validate her. Like, yeah. Before she joined mm-hmm. the cult. I need a man to have sex with me because that makes me special. And then when she was in the church, I need to be here because maybe I can find a husband. And although they weren't supposed to be having sex, she was having lots of sex, you know, with with married men in the church. Yeah. So her whole life has just been this. And when I had a conversation with her once, she got remarried and they came to my house to visit. And I have a bunch of documents from the commune. Mm. I went up there and took in like 2000 born in 2007. And um, in one of the documents is this notarized letter that my mother wrote stating that I was a horrible person, that I was a pedophile, that I was all of these horrible things. That and that you she, were a pedophile yeah, as a child? Yeah, apparently. What? That I ran away, that I was hostile, that I was belligerent. And then she had it notarized by Lou's wife and she sent that to the court Oh my God. Oh my God. I was a horrible person. And I brought it out and I showed her and she goes, that's not my handwriting. I didn't, I didn't do that. I'm like, mom, that's your handwriting. I know your handwriting. And her husband, she would never have done that if she wasn't under duress. And I'm like, bitch, you want to talk about duress? Right. What about the fact that my mother did this to me? So later that night, she was walking and I was helping her get ready for bed because she was a little bit impaired. And she goes, I do remember that. I just don't want my new husband to know what I took part in. And I was like, you know what? We're done. We're done. 
You can't validate the suffering and the abuse and the pain that you put us through, not only me, but my siblings. I could probably forgive it if it was just me, but my siblings, I cannot forgive the pain that, that she put them through. If you can't, and this was like 2005, 2006. No, it wasn't. It was before that because I left Washington in like 2004. So maybe 2003-ish. I cut off I cut off from her. I'm like, I'm done with yeah. you. I'm yeah. done. And I've never been or felt more empowered since cutting off that need and that desire. And I'm not saying it happened overnight, but that need for my mother yep. to mother me and to validate me when I said, I'm so done with you. Yeah. Freaking had it. You're out. And I struggle sometimes with guilt. Like, God, should I reach out to her? She's probably going to die. How am I going to feel if she dies and I haven't tried? And I'm like, no, forget it. No, it's done. Yeah. It's done. And I've reconciled that in myself. Yeah, that's she, wonderful. That's so empowering. It's a long process and it's painful. At this point, I'm just like, I can't allow her to inflict any more pain in my life. I just can't. She's yeah. done it. She's done it for so many years. So my siblings have mixed feelings about it because yeah. I'm the oldest. I, I was their mother, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. You know, and they, they can't comprehend that because I tried to protect them from as much as I could. But yeah. I, so I, yeah, I totally get that. I totally yeah. get that. Like that mixed insanity. And you know what? They brought it on themselves. Yeah. They created the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't want a, it's such a simplistic way to talk about it. In a lot of ways, a parent child relationship is transactional. If they, they are supposed to be giving you certain things and then you give them certain things back. And if they're not being part of that, if they're not giving you what they're meant to give you, which is that care, which is that love, which is that protection. You don't owe them back your loyalty. You don't owe them that. And it's, it's terribly painful. It's just a terrible, it's a painful place to sit in, but for your own healing, it's like one of the most important places that you need to go because exactly. as long as you are saying it's okay for my parents to pretend that none of this happened, mm-hmm. then you're saying that it's okay for me to pretend that none of it happened to me. And so you're not, therefore you're just not healing the parts of yourself that need to be healed because there's exactly. that whole part of you that's saying, I can't validate what actually happened to me because I need to protect that those places so I can forgive my parents and live with my parents. Mm -hmm. And I have a very difficult relationship with my siblings because I tried a couple of times to like tell them a little bit like what, what happened. And like one, one of them called straight up, just called me a liar. And so so like, of course, like I, I pulled back. I'm like, okay, this is now my pain that I'm going to carry. And I went and I've gone through life saying, I don't want to take your father away from you. That's the relationship I've had to have with my siblings of like, I can't tell you, I can't tell you the truth about what happened to me because I don't want to confuse your relationship with your father. But I'm then that makes me the white elephant because everybody knows like something happened and I'm the white elephant in the family. It's just it's a confusing place to be. And I've I've chosen Mm -hmm. that I'm going to have that that difficult relationship with my siblings. I Mm -hmm. love them so much, but they're never Mm going to be able to love me fully and as I am and in a full acceptance. So do you think that they do know? Yeah, they I, do I, know. I, I, I think, think they, they know. Yeah, I think that they know and, and they want to pretend like anybody that's anybody that like starts getting involved with me, they'll look through pictures like even on my Facebook and they'll be like, are you the photographer? Like, why aren't you in any of these pictures? Because mm-hmm. I'm invisible to my family. Mm-hmm. And that's just how and that's just how it happens, because 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and I believe fully it's because of that. It's because it's too, you know. Yeah. They yeah. have to face up to a lot of stuff that they don't want to face up to. So exactly. Yeah. I find that with a lot of the kids like were, that were my age in the commune who still choose to believe that their parents were good people Yeah, who chose to do, you know, who were, they fell under this man's spell in my mind. They're just as culpable as my mother for the abuse that I suffered. And I don't think that they are good people who fell <laughs> under the spell. I feel they made some really shitty choices and because mm-hmm. of their choices, I suffered. And there's an accountability there that I still expect yeah. from those people. Like one of my friends who I, I love her so much. She's just a darling person. But she's, yeah, my, my dad was just, he was a good man. He was a grandpa to everybody. And I'm like, no, your dad sat in those special groups and watched while a girl was stripped naked because she didn't want to get naked. And he was one of the men who went around squeezing my breasts when I was 14. So in my mind, he's not a good guy. Yeah. He made these decisions to behave this way for whatever reasons, that's his shit to deal with. But the damage inflicted on me is something that I have to live with. It's yeah, it's a, it's a, such a difficult road to navigate. Jemima, mm-hmm. you, you have that. Jemima has a very like extreme experience with one of the parents, the father of a very prominent, <laughs> like one of, one of our, one of our friends that speaks out quite a lot has this relationship with her father, that her father was this amazing person. And he was actually one of Jemima's abusers. And that's just, sorry, I don't mean to speak for you, Jemima, like, oh, like you speak for yourself. It's like, a, it's like a constant thing. Like, how do you yeah. even end up having a relationship with this person? Yeah. Cause there's this <laughs> there's this boil that's gonna pop if you like get too close and I, I don't doubt that there are a lot of people from the commune who regret the things that they did and they're living with that daily but not one of them has ever reached out to me and said there was one point it's this is funny you guys are gonna laugh so probably about maybe 12 years ago I drunk called everyone from the call I'll leave <laughs> nice. well, hey let's talk about the time that I was laying naked in your husband's bed. Can we talk about that for a minute? Okay, <laughs> let's talk about the time when you forced my little sister to dig a potty hole with banana peels around her neck. And they were all like, I don't really want to talk about that. It's so painful. I'm like, painful to who? You or me? Everything's Everything was all about them then. Everything's all about them now. Yeah, and I don't yeah. doubt that there's some very deep regret and shame and remorse and painful things that they have over this. But they don't, they don't exercise that shit mm-hmm. and talk about it or say, I did these horrible things. Yes, right. I may have been victimized by Lou, but at the same time, I took part and I did these things and I feel like a fucking shithole about it. Yeah. I'm so sorry I did that to you. One person said, God, I hope I didn't hurt you too badly. And that was enough for me to be like, forgiven, done. Right. Thank you. It was like releasing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't doubt that these people, even my mother, but for her, because she has never dealt with anything in her life that was tough and difficult. She let everybody else do it for her. I don't doubt that they have these regrets and shame. And maybe some of the people that were in that group that you were in have shame and regret and remorse, but I doubt that they would ever have the fortitude and the self-awareness to actually call it out and reach out to you and say, God, I'm so sorry. I hurt you so badly. Yep. Because that even in itself is healing for us. Oh yeah. yeah. 
You we know, actually, we, yeah, well, there's actually one, there's actually yeah. one and I, one. they're actually one of the only, yeah, yeah. they are the only first generation that we've ever, that we've ever interviewed. And we actually interviewed oh, her wow. and, and yeah. And she straight up was like, I was a fucked up mom. I did these fucked up things. I hurt my mm-hmm. children. I'm so sorry to you. I'm so sorry. And the healing uh, ex- of, of just hearing that was really powerful for, for, for right? us. But yeah, yeah. You, you're right. And and it's confusing. Be- I'm not confusing. It's so difficult for us because we were raised in such a way that that we were we were servants to all, right? right. Like you're raised, like you're servants to all. You are always yeah. supposed to make everyone around you happy. Yep. So to be able to go and deal with these things, you're going to make other people unhappy. You have to approach your these first generation and say, I need you to face this and I need you to hurt mm-hmm. because it's going to mm-hmm. hurt. Yep. And it's so hard to ask someone to do that because of the way that we were raised. We're mm-hmm. like, I, I can't yes. be that. I can't be that like weapon of destruction to your life. So we're sitting there stuck waiting for them to be able to to come forward. And very few of them do. There's every single one of them is always, I didn't see it. <laughs> it wasn't around me. Oh, there's people like Bullshit. straight up. There's people that straight up are like, I never saw the book of Davidito. And I want to fucking <laughs> slap them because I'm like, that was like everywhere. That everywhere. was the handbook of how to raise right. your children. Yeah. Um, right. it, it was the book in like where um, the, the son of the leader, Ricky, also known as Tabito, <laughs> was so abused. And oh, they, I, I don't even think about it. I yeah. And can't. there was a full up book on that this baby. is how you do it. And there's straight up these adults, these first generations that are like, I never saw the book. And I'm like, uh-huh. uh, that's like saying you never seen a Bible around uh-huh. the house. That's literally like what you're saying. And yeah, so that that level of denial is is really painful. And see, I think that there's this really intense, almost like a force field around forgiveness that's out there in the religious community, because they need that to be something they need it to be so important for their religion to work. (laughs) <laughs> their exactly. the Christianity does not work without forgiveness. Like it doesn't work because it's built on that. And right. so that's passed down like that. You can't heal. You can't live your life without forgiveness. So you can't do anything without forgiveness. And that's passed on. And it's we're fi- there's finally spaces that we're growing into where it's fuck you. I don't mm-hmm. need to forgive to be able to heal. In actuality, I can move on really well and I can heal without that forgiveness. So it's, it's just, it's an unusual healing space that you have to grow into to be able to say, yeah, I don't need to forgive you. And, and, but thank God it's there now or thank whatever, thank, (laughs) thank thank goodness it's there now that we can, that we can go into these spaces now where forgiveness is not required. I don't need to be okay with what you did to me. I don't need to forgive you. Mm-hmm. I can absolutely not forgive you and still heal. And that in the end of the, at the end of the day, that falls on them. That's the relationship that they've decided that they've chosen mm-hmm. to have with you. That's the relationship mm-hmm. they have, because if they don't want to move forward and into a place of healing, into a place of even just being able to discuss it, we're not forced to then forgive them if they're not going to move into that place. And that's the end of the, that's the end of the story of that relationship, basically, you know? And so. like you said, I'm okay with that. I'm fine. I am fine (laughs) despising these people and calling out their behavior and making sure that they're uncomfortable with it. That makes me feel good. And I'm not saying that in a way like vengeful. I'm saying that makes me feel whole. That makes me feel healthy. That makes me feel safe. When I can say, no, you behave this way. 
And that was the big thing too, is forgiveness, repenting, asking forgiveness, and then moving forward in the commune, in the church was this whole, you had to confess all your sins <laughs> and then you were forgiven and then you can move on. But that's a built-in mechanism to ensure that you don't ever expect to be treated well. Like, and, and it was all this servant thing too. If you give, it was giving in the church. If yeah. you give to 62 people, then you have 62 people giving to you and meeting your needs. Yeah. But those, those needs were never defined as Mm-mm. you, you deserve a safe home. You deserve comfort. You deserve to be advocated for. You deserve healthy food. You deserve yeah. medical care. It was no, you deserve to be used in these therapies to ensure that another man doesn't have sexual urges. That's how I'm going to give to you. (laughs) It almost builds in these mechanisms of making sure that we feel like we are worthless and less than, and to expect better treatment is selfish and self-involved and makes us look like hostile enemies to them. How dare I hold you accountable for your behavior (laughs) while I'm being held accountable for my expectations of you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And then we end up with no self-love and no Mm -hmm. self-care. And then we, we have to struggle for a long time to, (laughs) to learn how to love ourselves and to learn how to care for ourselves. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I think almost every person that's suffered some kind of a controlling relationship or cult or anything like that is going to struggle with self-love and Mm -hmm. self-worth. And in my personal opinion, that's the foundation. Like the first thing that you need to do if you want to heal is love yourself and realize Mm -hmm. that you are just as deserving of a space in this world as anybody else's. You have just as much to give and just as much to say. And there's no reason to cower to anybody or to feel less than anybody else because we're all humans. Join us next week to hear the rest of Deb's story. Stay brave and remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar.